With that, uh, we're going to go ahead and open up our Bibles tonight. Pastor Shane is going to come up, and he is going to be teaching us through 2 John. This week and next week, we'll be doing kind of a mini-series where we'll be covering 2 and 3 John. We actually did 1 John last summer, and so tonight will be a chance for us to kind of dive in a little further. So if Pastor Shane will come up, um, if you're not familiar with 2 and 3 John, just go to the very end of your Bible and then back up a little bit, and you'll find it there. It's towards the very end. So thank you, Pastor Shane. Thanks, brother. Well, good to see you guys. You, uh, you braved coming out of the nice weather to uh, come and join us here. That's good. We hope maybe some more will uh, join us here as we get going. Uh, again, happy Father's Day to those who are fathers out here. Um, again, my name is Shane, and I'm one of the pastors. For any of you who have not had uh, the joy of meeting just yet. Well, where I want to start today is uh, with a question. And so the first service got the question right, second service did not. Let's see how you guys do. You're nice and awake and uh, caffeinated by now, so uh, we'll see how you do. Um, on, uh, there's a very special event coming on December 18th of this year, and so I'm wondering if anyone knows, what's the special event that's coming, uh, not necessarily to the church, there's just something going on on December 18th. Uh, I want to see if anyone knows what that would be. It's a Friday, if that helps anyone. Does that help anyone? What's that? That a girl, yes. All right, I think you guys got it even faster than first service. You've had more caffeine. Uh, but yes, yeah, so on December 18th, the sequel trilogy of the original Star Wars movies begins with the first of three films, and this one's called The Force Awakens. Uh, full transparency, in case it's not clear, I'm pretty excited about this movie coming out. Yes, okay, good. We already got our first clap. Yes, our first amen, and it was about Star Wars. Um, the original Star Wars movie came out in 1977. I had to look that up. Fun fact, uh, that's before Pastor Aaron was even born. So um, mock as you will. Um, and that would mean that I was uh, six years old when I saw the first Star Wars movie, and you don't need to do the math on that. I already know that I'm the oldest of our elders. Um, but the point is, I'm really excited uh, about this movie coming out coming out, about the sequel that's coming out. And so if there's any of you that want to call in sick that day, uh, just happen to be sick, and you just let me know, we're going to form a group and uh, see if we can uh, all be sick together somewhere nearby. Um, everyone loves a good sequel, right? We get excited to hear the rest of the, so the story. We get excited to see what happens next. Well, if you're a fan of good sequels, and Pastor Travis kind of gave this away already, but I've got good news for you, because this week and next week, we're going to be digging into the books of 2nd and 3rd John, which are the sequels in the trilogy that is the Apostle John's epistles. And epistles just being a fancy word for letters. So we'll, this is 1st John, 2nd John, and 3rd John. That's the trilogy. And uh, last summer and fall, for those who were part of our church family here before we went through our little metamorphosis, we were working our way through 1st um, John together. And in our sequels, over these next two weeks, we'll see John hit on a number of the same themes that we saw him hit on back in 1 John. We'll see him make a pretty big deal about false teachers who were denying the truth about Jesus and the good news that he died for sinners like you and me to purchase for us eternity with God. In our sequels, we'll see John make a big deal about the relationship between love and truth and uh, obedience, just like he did in 1 John. And we'll see him give some pretty stern warnings uh, about the nature of the relationship between those elements and uh, what they mean for the life that he's called us to in, uh, as Jesus' disciples. In our sequels, we'll hear the Apostle John beat this drum for Christ-centered hospitality and for Christian community with one another as well. And all of this, in addition to uh, what is an 
always ever-present refrain with John, which is that we need to know how to truly and sacrificially love one another. So let's do this. Um, if you're not already in 2 John, go ahead and turn there. And I'm going to read for us through the entire book of 2 John. All 13 verses. And then we'll pray and then we'll dig in. The book of 2 John. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Sound City, may we be blessed by the hearing of God's word. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your servant John, who according to your will and plan, you caused to write down your good word for us so that through it we might grow in truth and in love for you and for one another. We pray, God, that through your spirit who indwells each of us who you've drawn to yourself, that we might grow in obedience to your word as we're instructed by your word right now. I pray that you'd give me every single word that you'd have me speak with these friends, this family that's gathered here in your name. And I pray your loving protection over them today and each day after, and that you'd right now be preparing each of our hearts, my own included, that we might be encouraged and challenged by what you're about to teach us. And we pray all of this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Well, the question that Second John I think really wants to teach us, that the Apostle John wants to teach us today is, he wants to answer this question for us, what does it mean to live in love and in truth? What does it mean to live in love and truth? This is common language for John that he regularly uses in his writing, and it's the main question that we're going to seek to answer today. What does it mean to live in love and truth? But as I'm fond of doing and is usually wise for us, I want to start by us getting a little context first. So here's a few things for us to note before we get going. First, John is the one that's the author of our sequel. He's an apostle, and he's one of Jesus' initial 12 disciples. He was also one of the most prolific writers in our New Testament, authoring five books all in the first century. That's all before the year 100. He authored the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Revelation. 
That puts John in third place as far as the number of verses written in the New Testament, John having written about 20% of the New Testament text. John's third only to Luke, who wrote about 27% of our New Testament, and Paul, who wrote about 23% of our New Testament, depending where you draw some particular lines. We also know about John that the later part of his life was spent in and around the region of the city of Ephesus, where he ministered as a church elder and overseer of a great many churches in that region, including the seven churches that he writes about in Revelation 2 and 3. And as John's trilogy of letters enters the timeline of Scripture, we find him doing that very thing. He's ministering to uh, all the churches in and around Ephesus. In 1 John, he writes more of a circular letter, a general letter that's uh, circulated first to uh, all his churches and then on to the other churches uh, later on. Then in 2 John, his primary audience gets a little bit more specific, as we'll see here in just a little bit. And then in 3 John, his initial audience uh, gets even more specific. And Pastor Aaron will talk about that next week, down to a single elder in one of his churches that becomes the initial audience for that letter. You might also recall that in 1 John, which was written about 60 years or so after Jesus' death and resurrection, that much of what the apostle writes of is his concern about certain people within the churches that are now beginning to deny the truths that had been passed down to them through the apostles themselves and through uh, the early written gospel accounts, like the gospel that John had written down, which is now our gospel of John that's found in our New Testament. But before we dig further into 2 John, let's take a minute and kind of focus on that particular focus, on those who were denying the gospel truths about Jesus within the context of 1 John. As a letter that's also written by John, and one that covers similar themes, it'll help inform the way that we understand 2 John and 3 John this week and next week. So let's look at 1 John 4, 1 through 6. We'll have it up on the screens for you if you want to not have to flip. And I'll read that for us. It starts out in verse 1 of chapter 4 of 1 John. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Let me pause there for a second. So when you see the word spirit, this always used to confuse me, uh, when it's a lowercase s, uh, what that means is we're not, probably, we're not talking about the Holy Spirit here. We're talking about something else. And so what he's not saying here is the Holy Spirit, and that small s in the word spirit is an indicator of that. So probably what he's talking about here, more likely, is this idea of spiritual truths or teachings being received from others about God. So the verse is really saying something like this. Beloved, do not believe every spiritual truth taught to you, but test the spiritual truths taught to you to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Then as John continues on, he tells us how to test to see whether a given spiritual truth is genuine or not. In verse 2, he says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Okay, now here we see the capital S in Spirit, which tells us that uh, the original Greek hiding underneath our English translation is indicating that it's the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity that's being spoken of in this case. So what John's saying here then is this. I'll start over in verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. In other words, the real truth about God as revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. Okay, now here's what John says is his test for this. He says, Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spiritual truth taught to you that does not confess Jesus as Messiah, as God who came and lived among us in the flesh, is not from God. Such spiritual truths are of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already through these false teachings. They, these false teachers, are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. 
we, by which he means the apostles who, are, uh, who you received a detailed eyewitness testimony about Jesus from, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth. Again, that's the spirit, or, or that's the truth revealed by the spirit of God and the spiritual teachings that are in error. Okay? Hard to track with a little bit. Hang on. Sound City, let me ask you something. So it's early in the sermon for us to go to application, but we're going we're gonna to do it. Um, as you think through the logic that we just rolled through, okay, about what's a truth, what's not a, what's not a truth that comes from the Spirit, let me ask you this. Where does your wisdom for living come from? As you think about your day-to-day. According to the internet, which of course is never wrong or never lies, we make about 35,000 decisions a day that are at least remotely conscious type decisions. 35,000. So if that's true, how many of your decisions each day would you say are informed by the truth that comes from the Holy Spirit? If we want to know how to live in love and truth, since that's what we said John's talking about here, it's probably wise for us to think about how we make our decisions day to day. Is the primary testimony that we listen to in making our decisions day to day the counsel of the Holy Spirit, or are we predominantly listening to the wisdom of the world? This is the question at issue in John's letters, throughout all of them, really. And it's an equally pressing question for us to tend to today. What John is saying in this first John text, then, is that in order to know God and truly walk with him, we must deny false teachers, we must deny the wisdom of our culture, and we must instead live according to what he and the other apostles have said about God and about Jesus through their testimony and through their writings. This text in 1 John is a perfect example of the concerns that are on John's mind in his whole trilogy of letters, and it sets the stage well for us now as we move into 2 John. All right, here we go. Beginning of 2 John. This is John's greeting. He starts in verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. There's a bunch of questions that just jump off of the text for me right away as I read that. I don't know about you, but uh, just for, the, for these first, for it being just three verses, for this just being a greeting, lots and lots of questions. Uh, the first one is this, who is this elder that seems to be the writer of 2 John? We already kind of know that one, I think, but we'll talk about it just for a second anyway. Uh, the elders, you might suspect, is John. Elder's a common term, as you guys all know, uh, that's used for one who's in spiritual authority. And we've already established early on, as we were setting context, that history records John as being an overseer of churches in this region, in and around Ephesus, where this letter was circulated. And so it just begins to come together and make sense for us that John is the writer Now, John didn't mention his name specifically, which is not altogether uncommon, Uh, but another reason he may not have mentioned his name is he may have been intentionally trying to be a little bit cryptic uh, in case the letter was intercepted. This wasn't exactly a time when Christianity was fully embraced, so he may not have wanted to unduly put a larger target on his head or on the target of those who he was writing to. 
But in any case, the church fathers and most historians from that time that we still have many records of uh, all ascribe this trilogy of letters to the Apostle John. So we're pretty safe in saying uh, that these letters were authored um, by him. Okay, maybe a more difficult question now. So who is this elect lady? Well, whoever she is, she's certainly the intended recipient of John's letter, and clearly John considers her one of God's elect. And just using that word may cause some of you to want to take a little excursus, a little parenthesis, and talk about uh, maybe what does Sound City believe about election. So I'll bite. I'll go there for just a second. We won't stay there long. Uh, We unashamedly hold to a reformed understanding of the Bible's teaching about salvation. What this means is that we believe that dead men don't speak. And that if we are as, we're as dead in our sin when God found us as the Bible says we were, then that means that he has to do all the work in enlivening us and in causing us to profess him as Savior and Lord. So does God do all the work in saving you and me? Yes. Do we somehow participate in that work enough so that we are held responsible even if we don't submit our lives to Jesus? Yes. And that's where we stay in tension. And we're not going to chase that rabbit any further today. So who's the elect lady? We'll go back to that. Well, it certainly could be an individual Christian woman that uh, John is writing to here. But far more likely, he's using familial language to speak of a particular local church in the region that he is an overseer and an elder of. The word for church in Greek, ekklesia, is feminine in its syntax. And the church is spoken of elsewhere using feminine familial language as well, right? In Ephesians 5, we see the Apostle Paul speak of the church as Jesus' bride. And then John uses bride language over and over to speak about God's people in chapter 5 of his gospel, and then several times in the book of Revelation as well. And I think what you'll see, just uh, as far as what it feels like when we uh, picture ourselves as as personal recipients of a letter like this, versus seeing it through the lens of this being to a congregation, you're going to feel like it just runs more smoothly, just the tone and the structure and the kinds of commands that are given. I think you'll see it fits much better. Okay, so if we can assume all that is true, then what John is doing here is he's speaking to one of his regional churches and their members, and he continues like this, saying of them, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. So now what's John saying? Well, he's speaking about his love for this church and its people, but he's grounding that love in something which then creates a kind of strange turn of phrase. He says he loves them in truth. And then he says that it's not just him that loves the people of this church, but that it's all those who know the truth, who love this church and her people. And then he gives the reason for his love for this church, saying it's because of the truth that abides inside those that know the truth, that they love the church and her people. And if that's not confusing enough, then in verse 3, John concludes his greeting to the church by saying, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. Wow. So, in truth, in truth, in truth, in truth. You think John might be trying to make a point here? Yeah, just a little bit. When a passage of scripture uses the same language, the same words four times in three verses, there's a pretty good chance, A, that it's important, and B, that the writer is trying to make a point. Uh, John was trying to make a point to these first readers and hearers of his letter, and God, by extension, is trying to make that same point clear to us tonight as well. 
So what's that point? Well, even just from that little bit of 1 John that we read earlier, we learned that the context for this whole trilogy of letters is wrapped up in this problem with false teachers entering the scene and denying gospel truths about Jesus. This is the same concern John has for the church that he's writing to in 2 John. So he begins to express this concern right away, even in his greeting to this church in Ephesus. And if I could paraphrase a little bit, here's what I think John is saying in his greeting. He's saying, church, I I love you very much. And all the other churches that hold to the truth about Jesus passed down to you through the apostles and their writings, they love you very much too. And you should know, elect lady, my church, that the reason and source of our love for you is that same set of truths about Jesus that make up the gospel, which through Christ God has deposited so deeply into our souls that it will be with us forever. So let's, pay, let's play the part of the elect lady for a second, Sound City. If John was saying this to us, uh, what's the message that we'd be beginning to receive, even just a couple sentences into this letter from one of our elders? Well, I hope, I think what we would probably be starting to sense is, oh no, Pastor John thinks we're slipping away from our foundation in the gospel truths of Jesus. Let's see if that's where he's taking us. Okay. Back to our text, starting in verse 4. John says, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. So here John's uh, saying a couple more things to us. He's saying, first, that some of the people in the church seem to be living out their profession of faith in Jesus, submitting to him as Lord and Savior, and then some apparently are not. Second, in speaking about the command of God, the Father, John's likely referring to the command from the Father, which he wrote about in 1 John 3.23, where Jesus says, and this is his, meaning the Father's, commandment, that we believe in the name of of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as the Father has commanded us. Then, Back in 2 John, the apostle continues in verses 5 and 6, and he says, And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, verse 6, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. So if I can paraphrase a little bit again, here's what I think John is saying to the church and again by extension to us in this passage. John is saying, my dear church, it's critical that every one of you, not just some of you, gives your lives to Jesus, believing that as the Father's Son, Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Savior. And additionally, church, you must obey my command to love one another. And by the way, these aren't new commands that I'm giving to you, dear church. Remember, this is the command that you were given by the Father from the beginning. And just to be clear, let me tell you what I mean when I say that you're to love one another. I mean, obey God's commands. When I say that you're to love one another, I mean, obey God's commands. Whoa. Do you guys feel the weight of what John has just said here? This idea that the Apostle John just served up is utterly and totally antithetical to how our our culture defines love. That love is perhaps primarily about choice and obedience is a paradigm shift of the highest order, and yet it's a principle and a truth that is commonly expressed throughout the New Testament. Don't believe me? Let me show you. 
In John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In verse 21 of the same chapter in John, Jesus says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. In John 15, 10, Jesus says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. 1 John 5, 3 the Apostle John says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. And then in 1 John 2, 3 through 6, John says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he, meaning Jesus, walked, which was in obedience to the Father's commands, in case that wasn't clear. This is nothing short of a redefinition of the word love that ought to blow our categories for the word. This is awesomely radical stuff. But before we go further on that point, which we will, I also want to make sure we don't misunderstand the relationship between loving God, loving one another, and obedience. Especially if you're new to Christianity or you're new to the Bible, we could easily read some passages like these and think that they might be suggesting that we're saved from the penalty of our sin by good works and not by grace through faith in Jesus. But if we read these verses a little more closely, we see that they're not talking about how we come into a saving relationship with Jesus. They're talking about the fruit of being in a relationship with Jesus. Let's look at one of them again. Let's read 1 John 2.3 again. It says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Do you see it? Keeping Jesus' commands is a sign. It's a show. It's a proof. It's the fruit that we have come to know him rather than the means by which we come to know him. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 uh, talks about how we're saved by grace through faith on two good works that God created beforehand that we should walk in them. There's a way that all these pieces fit together. Good works are the overflow of the Holy Spirit's work in us. And in this, they become an assurance to ourselves and to others that we belong to Jesus. All right, let's go back to John's letter now and his strong encouragement to this church that they should love one another through obedience. That long list of verses that we looked at makes it very, very clear that love is inextricably linked to our obedience to Jesus. Let me ask you, is it surprising to you, as, it, as surprising to you as it is to me how prevalent this definition of love is in the Bible, but how seldom it is that we think about love this way? The enemy is so pleased that he has convinced us as a culture that love is primarily concerned with feelings and emotions. But once we learn through scripture that love is far more verbal than that, we can defeat this scheme of the enemy. Through the verses we've looked at and lots more like it, the Bible teaches us that love is far more about choosing to live and act in accordance with the will and the way of God than it is about feelings or emotions. Maybe this will help. You guys can determine. We'll talk through a couple of options here. Let's look at John 3.16 and how it talks about love. All right, so you guys help me. Does John 3.16 say... God so loved the world that he felt all tingly inside and alive with feelings and emotions. No, of course it doesn't. It says God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God gave 
He made a loving choice. He performed a loving act through Jesus. And in doing so, he saved all of us who the Father had given to Jesus for that purpose. Let me give you a personal example as well. When I was 24 years old, I was 24 years old when God saved me, when Jesus got a hold of me. Uh, And in my high school and college years prior to that, as a non-Christian, my struggles weren't with drugs and alcohol so much uh, as they were with women. Women were my drug of choice. And without Jesus in my life, that's where I found my identity in inappropriate relationships with women. And I can promise you, I had no idea what love was. When I met Stephanie, who's now my wife, uh, I was just a couple years into my faith in Jesus, and I was still very much listening uh, to the world when it came to any kind of understanding about love that I might have had at the time. I still thought it was all about feelings that I was having for someone in a given moment. So when things were going well with Stephanie, I thought, oh, well, gosh, maybe I do love this girl. And when things weren't going so well over our four-year off-and-on dating relationship, which was often, I would think, gosh, maybe I'm not supposed to be with her. Maybe I'm supposed to be with someone else that'll make me feel feel the way culture tells me that I'm supposed to feel. And so we'd break up, and we'd get back together, and we'd break up. Then one day, after we'd been apart for the better part of a year, I found myself driving down the road and reflecting on mine and Steph's relationship. And I, I can remember right where I was in Dallas at the time. So I was on Park Lane on the east side of Central Expressway. And so I'm driving east a little bit. And there's a Bank of America ATM teller right over here. There's a Bennigan's that's right up here. I, I mean, I can picture it really, really clearly. And the reason I can picture it so clearly is because in that moment, I experienced something that I've very seldom experienced since, maybe only probably on one hand, the number of times I've felt this. Now, I, I didn't hear God speak audibly to me, but um, it felt like there was like this thought being like shoved into my head so firmly that it almost felt audible to me. Like when God has spoken to me loudly, that, that's how I sense it. Um, and in that moment, what, I, what I'm confident that I heard from God was this, Shane, you just need to decide if you're gonna choose to love her. And that was it. It was like this light switch went off. This switch flipped and God was helping me to see this verbal understanding of love that we've just here been talking about. In that moment, God showed me that love is primarily about choosing and about acting. And all these verses started to come to mind that showed this to be true. And it changed the way that I approached Stephanie. We were married less than a year later. And this understanding about love is one of the most important keys to life in Christ that I've ever learned, and it's deeply practical and transformative. Just a couple examples. How do you love that unlovable guy or gal in your community group? You choose to. And then God blesses it and uses you to show them Jesus as a result. How do you love that coworker who hates God and mocks you for believing in him? You choose to remembering how much God overlooked in you and then that person begins to see God differently as they see Christ's love in you? How do you love your spouse when they don't deserve it according to your standards or seem un- they seem unlovable to you? You choose to. Remembering how much sin God had to overlook to forgive you and then as you forgive your spouse over and over again and as you put God first in your life, your spouse gets more and more beautiful to you over the years as you begin to see them the way that God sees them. Love, according to scripture, is tied to choosing and acting 
more than anything else. Love, according to scripture, is tied to both choosing and acting. All right, let's head back to John's letter and remind ourselves of what John's told us and told this church so far in verses one through six. He's admonishing this church to get back to their foundational beliefs about Jesus and about who he is and what he's done to bring them new life and to save them. He's been saying something to them that's similar to what I was saying to you guys last month when I was up here and quoting my seminary professor who would walk into class. Every day he would come into class and say the same thing. What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you because it determines every other area of your existence. And that's a little bit of what John was saying to his church, that what we think about Jesus matters, that how we define the truth matters, that the truth we live by matters. And he was saying that how we define love matters too. And that to love one another well necessarily means obeying Jesus' good commands. But John in his letter is still building to something else. And so let's pick it up in verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. And who John's describing here is those who were perhaps at one point even participants in the life of the church in an orthodox way, with a right understanding of Jesus, who were then deceived before then turning into deceivers themselves. He goes on to describe this, these deceivers, saying, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. However, that seems like a bit of a shorthand, doesn't it? It's not terribly descriptive. He's listing one characteristic or belief that's typical of the group in order to describe them so in hopes that his audience will know who he's talking about. But when we look at the full trilogy of John's letters, what becomes clear is that these deceivers were part of an ongoing conversation. This was big, prominent news in the faith communities that John was leading. So his readers and his hearers would have probably clearly known who these deceivers were, even just by John's quick shorthand description. But there's more here than that if we scratch below the surface. Scholars suggest that within the earliest creeds that the church formulated was this shorthand of Jesus coming in the flesh that carried much more weight and significance and had lots more doctrine packed into it than what appears to us on the surface just as we read it as modern readers. But in those early creeds, to deny Jesus came in the flesh would have been to deny the life and death and resurrection of Jesus in, its tota in his totality. To deny Jesus in the flesh would be to deny the permanent union of the divine and human natures of Jesus as the Bible describes them. To say someone was denying Jesus coming in the flesh would have been to confess a false estimate of the person of Christ as being less than man or less than God. And to believe these things or to teach them to others was an attack on Christianity itself and it was an utter departure from walking in the standard of truth passed down to them which John is making such a big deal of in 2 John, verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 9 and 10, as well as we'll see here in a minute, all about this truth, the standard of truth that we need to walk in. Our doctrine matters, our theology matters, because it shapes the way we walk, the way we live out our faith in Jesus, and as we saw earlier, it even shapes how we love. What you think about when you think about God matters and is a matter of life and death, and that is not an overstatement. And that's why we don't see John, the apostle, hesitate to, in verse 7, call those who deny Jesus' incarnation deceivers who are spewing the lies of the Antichrist. Pretty serious language. And then he goes on to warn his churches and us with this in verse 8, where he tells us, watch yourselves 
so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. John's pleading with us here, as with a pastor's heart, that we would be careful. He's warning us to not lose this standard of truth about Jesus that he and the other apostles have labored to pass down to the churches. He's pleading with us not to lose this truth about Jesus that is able to make us wise for salvation, according to other scriptures. And that's the full reward for walking in truth that John's talking about here in verse eight. Salvation, yours and mine. But I don't want to keep skipping past this idea of truth, this idea of teaching that John continues to bring up over and over again in his letter. If it has the power to save us, and if John's making a point to mention it this many times, it's probably something that's worth us at least double-clicking on and going one level deeper in our understanding. The way I've been describing it so far is I've been saying that this truth uh, is the gospel truths about Jesus, or the standard of truth that's been passed down from Jesus by the apostles to the churches and then on to us. But if we take even a cursory look at 1 John, the prequel to our text today, we can find out quite a bit about what John more than likely means when he's talking about this body of truth, this standard of truth that he keeps talking about. So let's look at 1 John and let's see what we can learn about this standard of truth that John keeps talking about. In 1 John 4, 2, the apostle says, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, in other words, that he's fully God and fully human, is from God. In 1 John 2, 4, the apostle says, whoever says, I know him, him being Jesus, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. In 1 John 4, 15, the apostle says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. In 1 John 4.10, the apostle says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, which is the acceptable sacrifice or unearned pardon for our sins. In 1 John 3.5, he says, He, again meaning Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. In 1 John 1.7, the apostle says, But if we walk in the light, in the truth, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And in 1 John 5, 1, he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, has been born of God. These are the ones who are saved, he says. As we look at these seven verses from 1 John, comprised of different truth claims about Jesus, if we add those all up, what does that amount to? What do we have here? We have the gospel itself in its totality, that Jesus, the Son of God the Father, came down to us in the flesh, being both fully God and fully man. That Jesus lived a sinless life, and then, because of God's love for us, willingly went to the cross because of our sins as an acceptable sacrifice for us before God. That Jesus' blood was shed for you and me to cleanse us from all our past, present, and future sins so that everyone who believes these truths, confesses Jesus as Savior, and submits their life increasingly to obeying him as Lord could know with assurance that they're saved, that they're born of God, and that they'll abide with him forever. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it has the power to save us from our sins, and it's the truth that John, as an elder and pastor, is contending for throughout all of 2 John. He's pleading with his people not to fall in with these deceivers who are listening to the wisdom of the word, world and denying the gospel truths about Jesus and in doing so, purchasing for themselves eternal damnation and separation from God forever. 
John's contending for his churches, and so on behalf of your elder team here at Sound City, let me contend the same for you. Sound City, do you believe the gospel of Jesus? Do you believe that because of God's love for us, Jesus, God's son, came to earth in obedience to the Father as both fully God and fully man? Do you believe that he lived a sinless life and in doing what we could not became an acceptable sacrifice before God for us? Do you believe that through his blood on the cross and his resurrection in defeat over Satan, sin, and death that he purchased for us a pardon from God for all of those who would trust him for salvation and give their lives to him as Lord? Non-Christians, we know you're here. We're glad you're here. And more than that, we know why you're here. God has you here on purpose to hear the truth of the gospel of Jesus. And if you're here and you're a non-Christian and you would say that you would confess these things to be true, then you're not a non-Christian anymore. If you would confess these things to be true about Jesus, then you are not a non-Christian anymore. And if that's you, then please come talk to one of us after the service today so that we can celebrate that with you and pray with you. All right, Christians, now it's your turn. You've heard these gospel truths before. This is a truth that's been passed down to you already. But, and I say this with love and not judgment, does your life reflect it? Does your life reflect it? Or are you settling for something less than what God intends for those of us who belong to him? Maybe you've seen this quote before. C.S. Lewis famously said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Church, let's not be easily pleased. Christians, examine your lives. Don't believe the deceivers who would lie to you and have you be half-hearted in your devotion to the gospel truths about Jesus. James says it rather boldly and bluntly in his book, chapter four, verse four. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Instead of seeking friendship with the world, instead of settling for less than the joy that God has for each one of us, instead of believing the sometimes sweet-sounding lies of would-be deceivers, let's instead live as the Apostle Paul instructs us to, living a life worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Christians, that's the life that we're called to. And it's the best life we could possibly hope for on this side of eternity. And it's the life that brings God the most glory and us our greatest joy. In verse 9 of 2 John, he continues affirming again much of what he's already spoken to us. Verse 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, that is the gospel truths about Jesus that we've just been discussing, does not have God. But whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son and then in verses 10 and 11, another warning. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Man, John's unrelenting to, with these deceivers, isn't he? 
Let me ask you guys, what bearing do you think a text like this has on the kinds of relationships that Christians are to have with non-Christians? You ever thought about that? Now, these aren't simple non-Christians that um, John's warning his readers about. They're full-blooded heretics preaching a false Christology, denying core truths about Scripture. So John may feel this is what warrants such a strong command to not even greet them at all. But there's a principle here for us. As Jesus' disciples, we're a called-out people set apart by God and for God. We are to be in the world, but not of it. And so our relationships with non-believers must always and only be relationships of loving intention. Our relationships with non-Christians must be always and only relationships of loving intention. Close friendships, dating relationships, marriage relationships between a non-Christian and a Christian. In situations like these, one of two things is always happening. Either the Christian is influencing the non-Christian with God's truth toward new life in Jesus, or the non-Christian is influencing the Christian with the wisdom of the world, even if unintentionally so. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness. This is not just a marriage verse, you guys. This is a, this is a verse about all our relationships, every one of them. We must always be mindful of our relationships, Sound City, and we must always view them through the lens of our calling as God's possession and as people. John then concludes his letter to the elect lady, this church, saying this in verse 12. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. What John's saying here is, church, I've, I've written you the broad strokes of my loving concern for you here in this letter but it's even better that we talk about all this relationally, face-to-face, in community with one another. And the ultimate reason that John wants to go and talk face-to-face with them, he says, is so that their joy may be complete. What do you think he means by that? What John's saying here, I, I think, is that his hope in coming to visit is that it would result in everyone in this particular church uh, coming to a robust faith in this standard of truth that was passed down, as opposed to just some of them, as it says in verse 4. That everyone in this church would be walking and living according to the gospel truths about Jesus as a result of his coming and straightening out the situation and reminding them of the truth that's been passed down to them. Then finally, in verse 13, John ends with a greeting similar to the one that started his letter, saying, the children of your elect sister greet you. Here, the apostle simply offers a blessing and a greeting from God's chosen people who are standing in truth in his home church to those brothers and sisters who are likewise standing in truth at the church John's writing to. Now, we started out our time tonight saying that the question we were seeking to answer that John, we were hoping, was going to help us answer is, what does it mean to live in love and truth? What does it mean to live in love and truth? So let's see how we did. We learned that to live in love and truth is to have the forever promise of grace and mercy and peace from God. We learned that to live in love and truth is to love God and one another by obeying the commands of Jesus, basically redefining the whole understanding of love that we've had. 
We learned that to live in love and in truth is to be on guard against deceivers who would tempt us to believe the lies of the enemy with the false wisdom of our culture. We learned that to live in love and truth is to believe and to live all of life as a response to the gospel truths about Jesus. And we learned that to live in love and truth is the only way to be assured that God gets the greatest glory and we our greatest joy. Well, let's take some time now and respond to what God's been teaching us and hopefully what he's been placing on our hearts tonight as we've been talking. And as we often do, we'll respond in a few different ways. First, we'll respond through giving. So if our financial stewards will come, that would be great. We wanna be a people who don't worship our money, but who worship with our money and give it to the work that God is doing. And so that's why we give joyfully here. But if you're our guest, please know that you're under no obligation to give. You're welcome to, of course, but no expectation that you'd do that. Second, I wanna offer up some questions for reflection in our community groups and uh, for personal reflection as well. And I'll read those while the financial stewards are doing their thing. Number one, consider and discuss with your group the ways you go about making decisions, the, ones, the decisions that you make every day. Are there categories of decisions in your life that remain untouched by the filter of the gospel? Discuss with your group some ways we could ensure that we're making more and more spirit-led decisions each day. Number two, talk about the differences between how you typically think about love and the way we saw love defined in the scriptures tonight. Does this change the way you view any of your relationships? If so, share that with your group. Number three, consider John's warnings to the deceivers described throughout John's letters that we discussed tonight. And in light of that, consider if God would have you make any changes to the way that you approach your relationships with non-Christians. Share those thoughts in your group as well. And then number four, reflect on today's message and share with your group the most impactful thing God has placed on your heart during our time tonight and what he's asking you to do about it. Another way that we'll respond is through the Lord's Supper, through communion. We're all Christians, and uh, if there's any non-Christians that have become Christians tonight, you as well are welcome to come to the table in remembrance of Jesus' body broken for us and his blood shed for us. And then we'll also respond through song in worship to Jesus and then finally, at the end of the service, we'll also respond uh, through prayer, and we'll have some folks down here up front uh, after the service to pray with you if you want to respond in that way. So why don't we stand together, and I'll pray, and then we'll respond. Father God, happy Father's Day to you. We have so little to offer you by way of uh, any gifts but we can offer you our worship and our prayers, and so we offer those to you now. We also give you thanks for giving us your word, for it is through your book about Jesus, the Bible, that we come to know you. And it is through your word that we learn the gospel truths about Jesus that make us wise for salvation through you. Help what we've learned today about you be sticky in our hearts and minds, God, and let it transform us into a really faithful people who are led by your spirit in all of life, and let that be for your glory and our good. And we pray all these things through your son, God, and by your spirit. Amen.